Oh, good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is May the 11th, 131st day of the year. 234 days remain to the year's over with. And since you all wanted to know what holidays and observances would be on each particular day, Today is National Eat What You Want to Eat Day. It's also Hostess Cupcake Day. The theory is if it's Eat What You Want to Eat Day, you'll eat Hostess Cupcakes. Make a Book Day. I do that quite often. National Children's Mental Health Awareness Day. If your child is nuts, this is the day to tell them. National Foam Rolling Day. National Technology Day. National Twilight Zone Day. Somerset Day, from cheese and cider to history and culture, Somerset has got it all. And World Eagle Awareness Day, it's also National Nurses Week. So, take a nurse to lunch. All right, all that having been said, in 1812, Prime Minister Spencer Percival was assassinated by John Bellingham in the lobby of the British House of Commons. 1813, William Lawson, Gregory Blaxland, and William Wentworth discover a route across the Blue Mountains. That opened up inland Australia to settlement. 1857, Indian Rebellion of 1857, Indian rebels seized Delhi from the British. 1880, seven people were killed in the Muscles Law tragedy. That was a gun battle in California. There was a dispute over land titles between settlers and the Southern Pacific Railroad. It took place May 11th on a farm located uh, 5.6 miles northwest of Hanford, California. It's in the central San Joaquin Valley. Now, the exact history of this particular incident has been the source of some disagreement, largely because popular anti-railroad sentiment in the 1880s interpreted the incident as a clear example of corrupt and cold-blooded corporate greed. And less than, shall we say, ethical journalists and anti-railroad activists glorified the settlers and used the events as evidence and justification for their anti-corporate crusade. Frank Norris wrote a book in 1901 called The Octopus, A Story of California, that was inspired by this incident. Um, cited the incident's now a uh, registered California historical landmark. The uh, there's a lot of little known interactions like that from that time period. Uh, 1889, an attack on a U.S. Army paymaster and escort results in a theft of over twenty-eight thousand dollars and the award of two medals of honor. 1894, four thousand Pullman Palace Car Company workers go on a wildcat strike. 1919, Uruguay becomes a signatory to the Buenos Aires Copyright Treaty. 1970, the 1970 Lubbock tornado kills 26 and causes $250 million in damage. 1985, 56 spectators die and more than 200 are injured in the Bradford City Stadium fire. 1996, after the aircraft's departure from Miami, a fire started by an improperly handled chemical oxygen generator in the Cargo hold of Atlanta-bound Value Jet Airlines Flight 592 causes the 
Douglas DC-9 to crash in the Florida Everglades. Kills all 110 people on board. 1997, Deep Blue, a chess-playing supercomputer, defeats Gary Kasparov in the last game of the rematch, becoming the first computer to beat a world champion chess player in a classic match format. 1998, India conducts three underground atomic tests in Pokhran. 2011, earthquake of 5.1 magnitude hits Lorca, Spain. 2013, 52 people are killed on a bombing in Rehanli in Turkey. 2014, 15 people are killed and 46 injured in Kinshasa, a stampede caused by tear gas being thrown into the soccer stands by police officers. 2016, 110 people are killed in a ISIL bombing in Baghdad. In 2022, the Burmese military executes 37 villagers during the Montang Pen massacre in Sagain in Myanmar. And if you wonder why, they don't always need a reason to uh, react in that fashion. All right. You know, we've been talking about a lot of strange and off-the-wall things. And I've got... um, We've been talking most recently about UFOs. And some of the the fact that they were around, around long before Roswell. You know, I also found an interesting statement by George Keyworth, science advisor to Reagan, and when he testified to Congress, March 14, 1985. He said, all government agencies lie part of the time, but NASA's the only one I've ever encountered that does so routinely. Okay, for a lot of Americans, the name NASA brings back a Russia patriotic memories of the 1960 space race with the Soviet Union. That time period, we had heroes, mission-controlled technicians, engineers who could do anything, visionary politicians, astronauts who didn't mind being hurtled into the void, and primitive capsules mounted on rickety missiles that were barely more than contained bombs. And we watched in wonders. Our astronauts achieved one space-related miracle after another. When a major catastrophe befell the men of Apollo 13, all those forces came together and brought them home against impossible odds. Then we resumed our exploration to the moon and sent probes to Mars and the other planets. Hard to imagine a more optimistic era. Time when we believed as a nation in our ability to do anything and the fact that we were righteous in our activities. And the public facade presented by NASA was in keeping with this perception. But in actuality, NASA was born in a lie and concealed many unpleasant truths from the, about the men who walked the halls of that agency. And some of the names are synonymous with American achievements, such as uh, Verna von Braun, Alan Shepard, Buzz Aldrin. Unfortunately, in many cases, 
they had dark paths and secret alliance, uh, allegiances. And there are as many names that you've most likely never heard associated with a space program, but had just as much influence over where we went and why we went there. And they weren't just Americans. They were German, Egyptian, English. But they hardly represented the best that each nation had to offer. They were, in fact, men at the very fringes of rational thought and conventional wisdom. Now, these fringe elements seem to fall into three main groups inside the space agency. Um, one group was called the Magicians, another the Masons, and the third one was the Nazis. And each of these groups had their own agenda that affected our space program in very clear ways. And each one is dominated by a secret or occult doctrine that's far more closely aligned with ancient religion and mysticism than it is with the science and empiricism they promote to the general public. You know, boosted by the science of archaeoastronomy, that's the practice of using computer-generated star maps to look back in time, we discovered that NASA and the secret societies that quietly dominate the agency appear to be very interested in the possibility that somebody had inhabited vast tracts of real estate throughout the solar system eons ago. They sought to discover and hide not merely the existence of these ruins, but apparently the secret of what happened to the builders. Now, if you check the charter of NASA, you will see it's not as it's been touted, the Independent Civilian Space Agency, it's part of the Department of Defense. And anything that would seek to, um, to show the existence of other races, other entities, is automatically classified at the highest level. Now, using the same computer programs that NASA used, There was a pattern of behavior on NASA's part that points to an internal obsession by the agency with Isis, Osiris, and Horus, gods and goddesses from ancient Egypt. And it's these same three Egyptian gods that are the key to understanding the history, not only of the Masonic order, but those that have been referred to as magicians and Nazis. You know, the secret history of NASA can't be understood without appreciating not just the influence that these gods of ancient Egypt had on Freemasonry, but the corresponding influence the Masons and the other groups had on uh, NASA itself. Now, this information came from a man by the name of Mike Barra, who's written some very interesting books on uh, various aspects of NASA. Now, NASA was created by an act of Congress, July 29, 1958. The purpose was to act as a civilian space agency for the betterment of mankind and to enhance the defense of the U.S. And, of course, we've always been taught that NASA is a civilian agency who is um, subject to the will of the people through their representatives in Congress. But as I said, if you read the act, you get a far different picture. From the beginning, NASA was subservient to the Department of Defense. 
which means it's subject to the whims of the Pentagon on any issue judged to be necessary to make the effective provision for the defense of the U.S. It is required under the Act to make available to agencies directly concerned with national defense any discoveries that have military value of significance. This means the, the agency was not independent. It was compromised from its inception. Shortly after it was created, NASA commissioned a study by the Brookings Institute. At that point in time, it was the most influential think tank in North America. And this study was to determine the future course of its explorations into space and to study the implications of American society of any discoveries it might make. Now, this report, which was titled Proposed Studies on the Implications of Peaceful Space Activities for Human Affairs, was a document that included what would later be viewed as extremely significant passages, dealt with the potential consequences to our culture in the event that NASA discovered artifacts left at some point in time on the moon or Mars or Venus or some other planet by other entities. And he went on to recommend that if such a discovery was made, NASA should give serious consideration to the possibility of withholding disclosure on the ground such a revelation if made prematurely without a sufficient period of cultural preparation could result in the literal disintegration of American society. In other words, they were recommending NASA cover it up. And unfortunately, these recommendations made the NASA at the very dawn of the space age became the, the official policy of the agency behind the scenes. In this light, NASA's otherwise inexplicable behavior when confronted with evidence of exactly that kind of discovery that Brookings warned about suddenly seems to make sense. And that's evidence of extraterrestrial artifacts on Mars. And there's even been photographs of the fuselage of a what appears to be an aircraft uh, photographed by the Mars rover. Of course, nothing has been said about it. July 25, 1976, a project scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena by the name of Tobias Owen put a magnifying glass over Viking 1 orbiter frame 35A72 and said, Hey, look at this. What he saw was a mile-wide, 1,500-foot-tall edifice that would later become known as the Face on Mars. Next day, NASA held a press briefing in which the face was the unquestioned highlight. Dr. Gerald Soffin, a Viking project scientist, addressed the press. Um, he introduced the face image with the statement, Isn't it peculiar what tricks the light and shadow can do? And we took another picture a few hours later and all went away. Just a trick. Just the way the light fell. Well, interestingly enough, it was later proven this last statement was a falsehood. And it eventually became the first chink in the armor of the previously unassailed integrity of the space agency. And although the face made newspaper headlines all over the world, the old journalists took it seriously. They all accepted NASA's explanation that there was disconfirming photos taken later that same Martian day. Well... A few years later, a pair of specialists at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, Vince DiPrieto and Gregory Molinar, decided to look up the face image. They quickly found 35A72, 
in the Viking image files, and the early enhancements seem to argue against the trick of light and shadow explanation. Then they search for the other images of the face, alleged to be taken on later orbits, and surprised to find both that uh, the potentially interesting images of the face taken on subsequent orbits seem to have disappeared from the archive. And there was no fa trace of any disconfirming photographs that Dr. Soffin had alluded to five years before. After an extensive search at a Viking uh, image library, they discovered a second misfiled face image, taken 35 orbits later at a 17-degree higher sun angle. They never did find the supposed disconfirming image and subsequently established that since the next Viking orbit took it nowhere near Sedona and was at Martian nighttime, no such image could have been conceivably made. In other words, NASA lied. After this, um, Richard C. Hovland became involved and formed two separate independent Mars investigations into the possibility the face was exactly what it appeared to be, a sculpture of a humanoid face. He found a collection of anomalous pyramidal mountains nearby, which he promptly dubbed the city, and Eventually brought in curious professionals like Dr. Mark Carlotto and NASA astronaut Dr. Brian O'Leary to assist him in his investigations. In 1988, Hoagland was approached by Errol Torun, a satellite imaging specialist who worked for the then-Defense Mapping Agency. Torun was fascinated by a massive pentagonal mountain south of the face, which had been nicknamed the DNM Pyramid in honor of DiPerito and uh, Molinar. He held it was, not only was there no conventional geological explanation for its formation, he said it had a consistent, redundant internal geometry. And Hoagland later found these same angular measurements repeated again when they were checked against the city, the face, and other potential monuments in Sedona. The key to unlocking the mathematical mystery of these Martian monuments were the angles 19.47 degrees and 33 degrees. Both of these numbers related to not only each other, but also to the characteristics of circumscribed tetrahedra. That's a four-sided pyramid with identical triangular faces circled in a sphere. Eventually, Hoagland and Torin wrote a paper in which they hypothesized that the message of Sedona was to inculcate knowledge of the specific geometry and observed that most planetary bodies, including the Earth, had at least one upwelling or energy release point at or very near in 19.47 degree latitude. Later on, he developed a physics hypothesis that explained these observations based on James Clerk Maxwell's early electromagnetic equations, which Hoagland called um, hypodimensional physics. The only one Hoagland presented these findings to scientists at a series of briefings at NASA facilities in the late 80s that things began to unravel. JPL in particular raised objections to allowing Hoagland to continue the briefings and a PBS television special based on the research that was being supported by NASA headquarters was suddenly canceled. Soon after, NASA JPL announced plans to return to Mars and map the planet with a much higher resolution camera to be carried by the Mars Observer spacecraft. So by 1992, NASA went from openly supporting Hoagland and the independent researchers to vilifying and attacking them. NASA even took to revisiting the long-discredited disconfirming photo argument on his face and official correspondence to congressional inquiries and public request. And Dr. Michael Malin, a private contractor, was 
given unprecedented control over the Mars Observer camera and all the images it obtained, had dismissed the face of Sedona in general as a possible target for his new camera on the grounds. It'd be pure luck to get a good picture of the face. According to a later statement by Hoagland, almost as if they were using us to figure out certain things for him, and when we did, they disposed of us. Watching the controversy from a distance was Dr. Stanley McDaniel, an epistemologist and professor emeritus at Sonoma State University in California. He decided to study the Sedona debate and how it was being portrayed in the media might be a good subject for his postgraduate epistemology students. Using various political and academic contacts, we began to put pressure on NASA and JPL from several directions, forcing them to address on the record just why they weren't able to target Sedona, the face specifically. NASA responded with, um, as government agencies tend to do, with various contradictory, if not disingenuous, uh, arguments, including those by Dr. Malman. At each and every turn, McDaniel and Hoagland shot down the arguments, even finally getting the NASA headquarters public affairs office to officially admit the infamous disconfirming photos of the face never existed. In other words, NASA had lied all this time. McDaniel's final report of voluminous document, which lambasted NASA for its scientific approach to the Sedona issue, and concluded, among other things, that actually getting a picture of the face on Mars was about as difficult as hitting a door with a baseball from a distance of about a foot. McDaniel's report went on to declare not only was NASA's public stance on the face of Sedona unethical and unscientific, it questioned whether NASA could be relied on to share unfiltered scientific data from the Mars Observer all of which was paid for with taxpayer funds, folks. By the time the Mars Observer was nearing orbital insertion, the political pressure on NASA became enormous. Hogan and McDaniel engaged a number of congressional allies, and press was covering the controversy on a regular basis. Four days before Mars Observer was scheduled to make its orbital burn and commence operations, McDaniel delivered his final report simultaneously to NASA, Congress, the White House, and the media. Following Sunday, which was August 22, 1993, Dr. Bevan French, the Mars Observer's chief program scientist, was scheduled to debate Hoagland on ABC's Good Morning America with the issue of whether any observer images of Sedona would be taken at all. Well, Hoagland destroyed French in the open forum, using the opportunity to bludgeon French's weak and sometimes contradictory statement. Well, forced to defend an indefensible position that NASA should willfully allow Malin to have godlike powers over data paid for by the American taxpayers, French eventually wilted under the pressure. The final result came at the end when the exasperated host, Bill Ritter, finally confronted French point blank. He said, Dr. French, why don't you just take the pictures, immediately release them, and then prove these guys wrong? Well, as you might suspect, French didn't have an answer. Then at exactly 11 a.m. Eastern Time, just moments after Hoagland humiliated French on the national TV, NASA announced that the Mars Observer had vanished some 14 hours earlier. A multi-million dollar spacecraft just vanishes. Timing of this announcement, just a few minutes after the Mars Observer program scientists had lost a nationally televised debate, seemed a little bit too coincidental to everybody. I and French simply admitted that Mars Observer was lost at the top of the segment. It's inconceivable that the chief program scientist for the Mars Observer didn't know for over 14 hours his spacecraft had been lost. Well, in hindsight, it isn't difficult to figure out what happened. After other high NASA officials and their bosses watched French's uh, lame Sedona 
span control failed miserably on live TV, NASA went to plan B. Either pull the plug on the mission outright out of fear of what uncensored images might reveal or NASA. Remember, it's an official defense agency. The U.S. simply took the entire mission black. Well, but no new images of Sedona coming for at least the next five years. The investigation then turned to other areas of potential interest. The moon. Working on the assumption that an advanced spacefaring civilization had flourished on Mars in the distant past, it seemed logical that also had visited other planets or moons in the solar system. With much of our only satellite already photographed at medium and high resolution by NASA in the 60s, it offered a potentially vast catalog of research material. And researchers found gold. Starting in a region of the moon called the Sinus Medi, literally the sea in the middle, Hogan found evidence of a completely different kind of artifact on the moon. Miles high crystalline towers of semi-transparent glass. And the more images he obtained, the more the evidence mounted that these were real structures towering over some of the Apollo landing sites. While well, taking these images on a lecture tour around the country, including places like Ohio State University, Hoagland eventually met Ken Johnston, a NASA veteran who trained the Apollo astronauts to fly the lunar module and went on to work at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. Johnston told Hoagland the disturbing tale of his days at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. While there, he said he was put in charge of four duplicate sets of all the handheld photographs taken by the Apollo astronauts on the surface of the moon. Near the end of his time at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, he was ordered by his bosses to destroy all four sets of these priceless first-generation photographic data. He protested and begged to be allowed to donate the images to universities or other academic institutions, but he was told that NASA headquarters had dictated the policy and to destroy the photos he had been ordered to do. Fortunately, he disobeyed those orders and kept one set, some of which he kept in his possession. And those images completely confirmed the earlier findings from the orbit of data that Hogan had obtained. In other words, NASA lied, folks. Can you imagine that? These government employees, paid for by taxpayer dollars, lied to the American people. Well, as you might guess, the image Johnston had in his possession <coughs> were put to a theory of the test to verify the reality of the structures that appeared to be spanning the horizon behind the astronauts. Computer artifacts, emulsion scratches, and simple age degradation of the prints were ruled out by independent photographic experts. The geometry of the lighting was also completely consistent with the scattering of sunlight through an intervening transparent medium like glass. And more research revealed that in the hard lunar vacuum, glass would actually be stronger than steel, making it the perfect material for protective lunar dome construction. Architect Frank uh, Fiertek did a painstaking reconstruction of the original 3D structure of the lunar domes by inserting tons, tens of thousands of point source lights and the images into a CAD program. The resulting 3D model matched the predicted results precisely. Fortunately, um, Ken was a pack rat and he had kept numerous other awards, certificates, and patches from that period. And it was going through Ken's storehouse of this Apollo data that made the discovery of a turn the investigation in a completely different direction. Ken's Ken Johnson, by the way. 
They came across an official Apollo logo patch from the early days of the program. The entire motif was built around the constellation Orion. This was incongruently bizarre because NASA had based their program mythology around the Greek pantheon of gods like Apollo himself. Orion was worshipped not by the Greeks but by the Egyptians and as the stellar present representation of their god of a resurrection Osiris. In fact, the story of Orion, Osiris, and his murder at the hands of his brother Set or Taurus, his magical resurrection by his wife and sister Isis, represented by the star Sirius and sometimes the moon, and his vengeance against Set through the hands of his son and heir Horus or Leo is the most ancient, sacred of the Egyptian origin myths. So you have to ask yourself what it was doing on a project patch named for the Greek god Apollo. Well, knowing the ancient Egyptian religion was a stellar one uh, on a hunch, Hubble bought an astronomy program for his computer and started looking at the sky over the landing sites for the various Apollo missions. Johnston had told him that Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon after Neil Armstrong and Apollo 11, was a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason. Um, as was Johnston himself. In reading through Alden's own account of the Apollo 11 missions, entitled Men from Earth, they found an interesting entry. He wrote, During the first idle moment in the LM before eating our snack, I reached into my personal preference kit and pulled out two small packages that had been specifically prepared at my request. One contained a small amount of wine, and the other one a small wafer. With them and a small chalice from the kit, I took communion on the moon, reading to myself my small card I carried on which I'd written a portion of the book of John used in a traditional communion ceremony. Well, Aldrin's communion ceremony actually had its real roots in ancient Egypt as an offering not to Christ, but to Osiris. And it was discovered that the date of the Apollo 11 landing and this mysterious ceremony honoring Osiris was a sacred one in ancient Egypt. July 20th was the date of the annual inundation of the Nile Valley, marked by the so-called helical rising of Sirius uh, around 2500 B.C. This sacred ceremonial date marked the start of the Egyptian New Year, ushered in by Isis's stellar equivalent, Sirius. And going over the transcript of the Apollo 11 mission, it was found that the first royal break in the astronauts' work schedule was exactly 33 minutes after they landed and established Tranquility Base. And that was interesting enough. But when they looked at the sky with the landing site with the astronomy software, they found Sirius was hovering over the Apollo 11 landing site at 19.5 degrees above the lunar horizon. Now, there was no question that Aldrin's Masonic offering to Osiris was carefully planned for this precise moment and location on the moon. With Osiris's wife, Isis, looking down from her exact 19.5% uh, elevation and observance of the sacred moment. And it all took place on July 20th, 1969. Also a sacred Isis date in the ancient Egyptian calendar. After further checking, it was determined the landing site of Apollo 11, known as Tranquility Base, as a, was the only location on the lunar surface where this precise set of stellar alignments could take place at that specific time and on that specific date. This would explain why Armstrong found it necessary to land five miles downrange from the original planned landing site. Now, the fact that Sirius was at 19.5%, not on the horizon or meter or meridian, as a truly pure interpretation of the ancient stellar religion of, of Egypt would call for, had far deeper implications. 
It suggested it as far back as 1969, NASA was fully aware of the significance of Sedonia to hydrogeometry and maybe the physics behind it. Even though this was more than half a decade before the first images of the Martian region could be taken, further clue was found in the hieroglyphic symbol for the Sirius, an equilateral triangle, the 2D representation of a 3D tetrahedron. It was later discovered Aldrin had carried a Masonic apron adorned with the equilateral triangle symbol with the number 33 inside it to the moon with him. When he got back, he presented this Masonic flag to the head of the Scottish Rite at a ceremony in the House of the Temple in Washington, D.C. It's the same Masonic flag and place of old glory that uh, Hoagland and Barra put on the cover of their book, Dark Mission which I highly recommend you read. Well, then they began to check similar stellar alignments on other historical significant NASA missions and events. And if this wasn't enough symbology, landing Apollo 12 a few months later, a translunar injection of Apollo 8, the first manned mission to leave the Earth orbit, and even the landing site of Apollo 17, all had the same significant stellar alignments associated with them. Most, if not all, of NASA's major historical events seem to be built around following this Egyptian Masonic tetrahedral alignment model. And a rudimentary check of the spacecraft names found a similar pattern. Apollo 15 lunar module had been named Falcon, supposedly a reference to the mascot of the Air Force Academy. But if you'll Stop and think. Falcon's also a reference to uh, Horus, the son of Osiris. The Apollo 16 lunar module had been named Orion, obvious reference to Osiris. And the Apollo 11 command module, Columbia, got its name from St. Columba, 6th century monk who in Masonic lore brought a sacred stone to Scotland from Egypt. Even the Apollo 13 lunar module, Aquarius, is named after the water-bearing goddess of Egypt, who was a stand-in for Isis. Even today, NASA's new Apollo on steroids moon program is named Orion. And the International Space Station has an unofficial nickname of Isis, the ISS, also Isis. If you look at the people who directed and manned these missions... It was discovered that everybody who was anybody at NASA in the late 60s was associated with either the Nazis, the Masons, or the JPL magicians. The man who selected the landing sites and times was Dr. Farouk Elbaz, an Egyptian geologist who also just happened to be the son of a professor who was an expert in the ancient Egyptian stellar religion. James Webb, the director of NASA at the time, was a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason. Dr. Werner von Braun, the father of American rocketry, was a major in Hitler's SS, though his under Operation Paperclip, uh, when he was brought over, Harry Truman said no Nazis could come, so his file was modified to remove the reference that he was a Nazi, and later on he said he was uh, unwillingly a Nazi. In fact, uh, Reicher SS Heinrich Himmler even attended Von Braun's induction ceremony personally. And at least four of the 12 astronauts who walked on the moon, Aldrin, Stafford, Mitchell, Irwin, and maybe Alan Shepard, 
for Scottish Rite Freemasons, as was Kenneth Kleinkunick, director of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, and whose brother, C. Fred Kleinkunick, later become the titular head of the Scottish Rite in the U.S. John Whiteside Parsons, who was one of the founders of JPL, was a follower of Aleister Crowley and associated with L. Ron Hubbard in his Pasadena mansion during a series of magical workings designed to bring on the apocalypse. And if you dig deeper, you'll discover the fingerprints of Von Braun and his Nazi cohorts on the program, space program, in many areas. April 20, 1967, NASA landed Surveyor 3, an unnamed, unmanned probe on the moon. Now, that date was significant because it was Adolf Hitler's birthday. Later, the Apollo 16 lunar module Orion landed on the moon the same date on 1972 with Sirius precisely 30 30 degrees below the visible horizon. So a spacecraft launched by a rocket designed by a member of Hitler's SS, named for the god of the SS, lands on the moon on Adolf Hitler's birthday with a Sirius to similar stand-in for another of the gods of the SS at 30 30 degrees, a sacred Masonic symbol. Now, critics of this theory say it's all coincidence. It just happens. Once is instant... Uh, Happenstance, twice as coincidence, three times as enemy action, far more than three times. Well, many of these also the sole runway at Cape Canaveral, or Cape Kennedy, whatever you want to call it, is runway 33. Only a launch pad at the White Sands Missile Range where Von Braun conducted his post-war test is launch pad 33. The only two active launch pads at Cape Canaveral were pads in 39A and 39B. 39 divided by 2 is 19.5. There were so many correlations that um, Hogan and his other researchers just stopped bo bothering to check for him. Probabilities expert did an independent study and calculated the odds of all these alignments being coincidental as 19 billion to 1 against. And even... Their worst critics had to conclude that they were onto something when NASA sent the Mars Pathfinder probe to the Red Planet in 1997. The uh, little rover called Sojourner, that's a Masonic term for a mason who's traveling from his home lodge, is carried in a tahedral shaped lander that bounced to a halt at a very significant location on the Martian surface. 19.5 degrees by 33 degrees. Even author Graham Hancock, who'd been reluctant to endorse the ritual alignment model, had to admit this one was too much to swallow. He wrote a book called The Mars Mystery, where he discussed it in a bit of detail, and had to admit that uh, a lot of what Hoagland and his companions were saying was too much of a coincidence not to be true. But if the missions like Pathfinder and Apollo 11 were purely symbolic, consecrating these sites as temples for the Masonic Order, well, the missions had more practical aims. The next two missions to successfully explore the moon after Apollo 11, 12, and 14 land just 112 miles apart. Apollo 13 never made it after an in-flight accident nearly left its crew stranded in interplanetary space. This makes absolutely no sense that the real purpose of the Apollo program was to conduct a diverse geological study of the lunar surface. 
fortunately, Ken Johnston's uh, salvage first-generation prints allowed investigators to pinpoint specific structural objects over the horizon from both landing sites, effectively proving the presence of the megalithic crystal towers on the moon. Later missions, like Apollo 17, which landed uh, at 19.5 degrees latitude, appeared to be out-and-out salvage missions to bring back whatever remaining technology they could obtain from these ruins. The second EVA on that mission made a beeline for a feature called uh, Nansen at the base of the hexagonal mountain named uh, the South Massif. Nansen from aerial images taken with the, from the Apollo 17 command module actually appears to be a depression leading under the hexagonal ruin, that's the South Massif. In fact, EVA maps used by the astronauts to locate Nansen's point to the area with the caption access region as they approached it on the lunar rover. Astronaut Harrison Smith's heard explaining, look at Nansen. My goodness gracious. The commander, Eugene Cernan, uh, responded, man, you talk about a mysterious-looking place. Now, the astronauts subsequently explored Nansen mostly off-camera for over 64 minutes without once positioning the TV camera to actually look into the crevasse they were so excited about. They also indicated it took multiple photographs of Nansen, but no pictures on the inside of the feature have ever been found in the photographic archives. Cernan said later, I have some good pictures of Nansen anyway. And you know, I look out there, I'm not sure I really believe it all. Well, they went straight to Shorty Crater where they made an even more astonishing discovery. Orange soil. Turned out the orange soil near Shorty had been heavily oxidized, resulting in the odd color. There was something even more bizarre lying at the bottom of that crater. There, resting among a collection of what appeared to be technological devices and broken machinery, was an object that looked to be a severed head. The object had two symmetrical eye sockets, a protruding nose, a skull structure, everything you'd expect a real head to have. But it was clear it wasn't biological. It was the right size and shape to be a human head. But no fossil would have survived even a few decades in a harsh lunar environment. Color enhancements revealed a bright red anodized uh, stripe around the mouth area, apparently painted in a neat horizontal manner across the skull. The only logical explanation anybody could come up with was his head, like all the other bits of metal around, was mechanical. Well, they shared the image with one of the astronauts who walked on the moon to get his opinion. Instead of laughing it off or simply dismissing it, he asked him everybody to get back to him when you have a higher resolution image. That implied two things. First, there were higher resolution images of it, and second, he took the possibility that it was an artifact seriously. Dr. Robert Such, a geologist from Boston University, was shown the image at the 2006 CPAC conference. described himself as freaked out by it and stated category it was not a rock. Well, what nobody knows for certain is if they brought it or some sample of technology like it back from the moon. After Pathfinder, NASA sent the replacement from the Mars Observer to the Red Planet. Mars Global Surveyor entered orbit in the fall of 97 and April of 98 after months of public pressure. Dr. Michael Malman, who once again had total control over the data, was forced to take an image uh, of the face of Mars. 
The JPL released the image on the morning of April 4th, 1998. Well, this particular image was a bit of a disappointment. It looked nothing like the face everybody expected. It was quickly dubbed the cat box image by Art Bell, who compared it to a pattern his cat might make in her litter box. All the major networks reported on it that evening on their primary broadcast and dismissed the face as just a pile of rocks. When GPL official was heard saying, I hope we scotch this thing for good. Three minutes after the major network signed off their broadcast for the evening, JPL released a second dramatically better version of the image. It still looked odd because the face was imaged from below and in poor lighting conditions, but one scientist, Dr. Tom Van Flandern, Yale-educated astronomer, spent more than 21 years at the U.S. Naval Observatory and was chief of the Celestial Mechanics Branch at the Nautical Almanac Office, declared that based on the image, there's no longer room for reasonable doubt of the artificial origin of the face mesa. And he said, I've never concluded no room for reasonable doubt about anything in my 35-year scientific career. Well, within a few days, researchers discovered the new image of the face only contained about 50% of the data it was supposed to have, making improvements in the quality of the low-resolution, high-contrast cat box image impossible. Later, a NASA contractor named Land Fleming reconstructed the cat box image and duplicated it almost exactly. In order to do that, he had to use a high-pass filter, which removes high-frequency data, and a low-pass filter, which removes low-frequency data. What was an embossing filter, which creates false visual cues and throws false shadows. So it was a wonder that it looks like a pile of rocks. Well, in May 2001, under more public pressure to take a true overhead image, NASA released a new MGS image of the face. It was better, but still distorted because JPL and Mallon had done an improper orthographic rectification on it, enhancing the appearance of uh, asymmetry. The image released appeared to be a highly political article published on the NASA website that derided the face. Unfortunately, in order to accomplish this, they turned the image upside down and flipped it horizontally, swapping the western half for the eastern half. They also included a 3D model of the face, which NASA claimed was generated from the MGS Mars Orbital Laser Altimeter. article stated the that the uh, Mars orbital laser altimeter had a resolution of a few centimeters, and the 3D view proved the face had no eyes, nose, or mouth. What they didn't tell their readers was that the vertical resolution of the MOLA, as they call it, is a few centimeters, meaning it knows how high above the Martian surface it is within a few centimeters accuracy. What they didn't tell their readers was also that the horizontal resolution of the instrument was 150 meters, or about 527 feet. In other words, one pixel, or picture element, of data from the MOLA was as big around as a baseball stadium. That resolution would take a measurement of New York City and completely miss the landmarks such as Yankee Stadium, the Empire State Building, or even Ground Zero. Even the crude Viking 1 camera that took the first face image was made up of tens of thousands of such pixels. Well, the one objection that normally arises in bringing these issues to public attention is relevance. A lot of readers, even if they're convinced by the evidence, NASA not only conspired to withhold proof of extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial archaeology from the general public, 
but may also be engaged in a series of bizarre astrological machinations to argue that it's meaningless, has no real impact on the issues of today. On April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space aboard a, space, a Soviet spacecraft. Six days later, NASA finally delivered the report they'd commissioned on the proposed plan for space exploration. That's the Brookings report to Congress. Two weeks later, as if he was responding directly to the calls in the report for NASA to consider suppression of the discovery of ET artifacts, McKinney made his speech in which he signaled he intended his administration to be an open one. He took the opportunity of a speech before the American newspaper publishers association at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City to openly bash what he calls secret societies. Now, certainly, there are secret societies. In the battalion I was in in South America, they made no secret of it. There was a secret society at work. Very weird secrecy is repugnant, according to Kennedy, in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighs the dangers which are cited to justify it. He made that speech April 27, 1961. His opening comments, speaking of secret societies and the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of things he felt the American people had a right to know, was an unmistakable shot across the bow, at least fraternal organizations, and a direct reference to the recommendations contained in the Brookings Report. Within a little over a month of drawing this line in the sand, he addressed a joint session of Congress and issued his ringing call for landing on an American on the moon before 1970. He actually said by 1969. So we premiered Nina Khrushchev's son, Sergei, or Sergei, now a senior fellow at the Watson Institute at Brown University, stated less than 10 days after his public call to go to the moon, Kennedy did a very extraordinary thing. He secretly proposed to Khrushchev at their Vienna summit that the U.S. and the Soviet Union merge their space programs to get to the moon together. Well, Khrushchev turned Kennedy down in part because he didn't trust the president after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, but also because he feared America might learn too many useful technological secrets from the Russians. And the situation was made worse by the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 in which both nations stared down the barrel of nuclear annihilation and and carefully stepped back from the brink. August of 1963, Kennedy met with Soviet Ambassador Dobrynin in the Oval Office and once again secretly extended the offer. This time, uh, Khrushchev considered it more seriously, but ultimately rejected it. And then Kennedy surprised the entire world when two days later went before the United Nations General Assembly and repeated his offer of cooperation in public. Well, the long and the short of it is... There were a lot of secrets in the space program. A lot of things the American people should have known because we paid the bill. And in fact, there are those that say that that's why Kennedy was assassinated, because he wouldn't shut up. Now, whatever may have been the reason, on that note, we've come to the end of today's show. And we'll talk more about strange things in tomorrow's show. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great